our mind is along for the ride, all right? So I like to say that every thought we have is actually the result of an existing pattern in our brain. So all of our beliefs are given by patterns. And once we have a pattern, we tend to believe along those lines. And we can't shift that very easily until we know how to shift the pattern. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Today we have the privilege of speaking to the author of Shift, Four Steps to Personal Empowerment, a multi-awarded thought leader, an international trainer, and a fearless speaker. She has a master's degree in humanities, humanistic studies from York University, and was awarded the 2020 Woman of Inspiration Custom Experience Award 2021 Top Behavior Expert of the Year by the International Association of Top Professionals. And in May of that year, she was featured on the cover of the Top Industry Professionals magazine. Having been recognized for her outstanding contributions in the field of customer experience, behavior expertise, and personal empowerment, her book, Shift, Four Steps to Personal Empowerment, has won three awards for its powerful message of inspiration, hope, and is transforming how people are setting and achieving their goals worldwide. I'm pleased to introduce a woman of inspiration who is fascinated by neuroscience and human behavior and and uncovering what makes us unhappy. Adele Spragan. Adele, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Craig. Adele, it looks like you've led a an exciting career. I'd love to know, where were you where did you grow up and what was the big dream when you were running around the backyard of the home? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, well, I was born in England and then moved to Venezuela when I was three. So grew up mostly in Venezuela as a small child. Um, growing up, I wanted to paint backdrops for theaters. I was just so inspired every time I went to a play and I saw those backdrops and what they would do with those stages. I just, that was my dream. Never made it, but that was my dream. <laughs> Painting the backdrops of stages, beautiful. So did you used to create little stages um, in of your bedroom? Of course, yeah. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> and my little puppets who would play in front of my little stages, but that was as far as it went. Beautiful. Now you talk about, you know, going from England to Venezuela. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a big shift in landscape. I mean, probably don't remember too much of growing up in, in England, but, uh, you know, growing up in Venezuela, what was that like? Um, what, you know, what were the experiences like of growing up in South America? 
Yeah, it was very interesting because I was what is now termed a shell baby, right? Shell oil. My father worked for Shell Oil, and so the whole family moved there. Um, it, it, we were, we grew up in a gated community, so we really didn't interact much with the people of Venezuela. And it really shaped how I saw the world because to me that was just so unfair, I'll call it, great, right? So I would drive through Venezuela and we would see the, the poverty and the people who were living on the hillsides and things like that. And every year the mudslides would come and they would rebuild because they had nowhere else to go. And as a child, I just could not understand this dichotomy between where we were living and where the people were living that that owned that country. And so it really, really shaped how I started to look at human behavior. And now, as an adult, and I reflect back and see what, how it shaped me, I can see how it really got me curious about what would cause that kind of dynamic and, and what would cause us to behave in this manner, which to me was so cruel. So, yeah, so it was, it was quite different. Um, we used to play at the beach all day. In fact, there was a whole year where we never went to school. My mother just uh, took us out of school and said, hey, let's just go play at the beach. <laughs> and so we did. I had two sisters. So the four of us would just play all day. And, and that's what we did. So again, that also shaped me and how I saw the world. So it was through a very different lens than traditional teachings, traditional learning, um, a lot of experiential learning. And I find that, again, that's what shapes how I coach today. It's what's your experience, not what's the theory. I love that, being able to go to the beach every day. <laughs> it was I, fun. <laughs> I, I moved to the. I moved near the beach so I could do that, but I'm not sure I'm quite getting to the beach every day. Uh, fascinating. Yes, uh, like living in gated communities, it is, it is a different world. Um, it can become a little small island sometimes, in a way, so small town syndrome. Uh, but I'm sure living in those communities, you had some very um, intelligent and um, quite affluent people around. So the, the experiences of the people in that in that gated community, I would imagine, would have been um, quite profound too. Yeah, absolutely. The affluence where we were living and then compared to the poverty outside those gates was just night and day. I mean, completely night and day. Um and we were in very privileged schools and all of that stuff that, you know, uh, that too shaped me as well. So, yeah, yeah. And then at the same time, you know, my, my family itself, there was a lot of mental illness in my family. My father was mentally ill. So there was very um, closed walls mm -hmm. and, you know, don't let the skeletons out of the closet as well. So all of that kind of shaped how I became a coach. Yeah, well, you, you're thinking about, you know, you're talking about the mudslides coming through every year. Uh, what... Um, I, obviously resilience, you know, you think of resilience, right? Getting back up yeah. on your feet and rebuilding every year. I mean, their resilience must be extremely high living in a world like that, which, which they know probably no different, right? For them, it was just normal. Mm -hmm. This is life. Um, but for everyone else looking in, you're going, why would you do that? You know, can't, can't we find a better way of living? Isn't there uh, another place we could settle rather than on the side of a hill or, or at the bottom of a hill? Um, so did that, I mean, obviously while you were there, were you curious about it or do, is it more later on that you started to reflect more about, okay, this is a different way of living than what I grew up in? 
Yeah, definitely. I'm, I, I was a very curious child. I, I think I felt more shock than curiosity, though. More, I, I felt the inequity of it more than the curiosity about it. Later on, I became curious about how human behavior causes that kind of dynamic. But at the time, I was just in my own world of this isn't right. <laughs> That's basically what it comes down to. This wasn't right, as far as I could see. Hmm. And while you're, you know, were you there for high school or had you moved from there at that point? Just before high school, we, I moved here. So okay. I came here when I was 14. Yeah. So making that shift at 14, obviously, that's quite a big change for a teenager. You know, you, you've grown up in a space, you develop friendships and a social way of doing mm -hmm. things, and then you, you up and move. Did you find yourself in a space of being a natural leader or more of a follower when you moved to that? Oh, definitely a follower. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I, I had patterns of massive people pleasing, um, a very much an introvert, very much shy, um, would not step out as the leader that I naturally am or naturally know myself to be today. Back then, I was just trying to fit in. In fact, I would practice my accent in the mirror to try and fit in because right? <laughs> I didn't want people to know that I was an outsider. So, yeah. I think a lot of people go through that in life where we just want to fit in. We want to belong. And so we actually become someone who we're not really are in a way yeah. just to, as you say, it's, it's people please in our own mindset, you know, what we think they will want. Uh, but maybe, yeah, just to keep that peace, as you said, you're an introvert, you didn't want to cause um, any sort of disruption. So it's just like, yeah, look, I, I will go along, I will play the game, um, mm -hmm. so to speak. Exactly. You know, you, you, with your own children, so, you know, obviously going through that through your experience, what did you learn from your upbringing that you then shifted into the way that you parented yourself? Um. I think, frankly, it made me too safe with my kids. I wanted to protect them too much from the outside world. Um, and so it kept them a little bit too sheltered. Now, today, I would be much more willing to travel, much more willing to change countries, much more willing to shift them from one area to another. But I think the my experience prevented me from doing that. Mm. So... That's one thing I can say. Um, luckily for me, they've grown up to be very well-rounded adults and nothing is wrong. So, yay. But, you know, as I see it now, I would give them much more of a, um, an opportunity to see the world in their way. Yeah, if your heart's in the right place, it doesn't matter, you know, kind of, as you say, whether you, whether you, whether you expose them to lots or not, you know, it, people will evolve. And I think if the, the right heart is there from the parents, um, they will find their way, which is beautiful. Uh, so you started out a career in accounting. Uh, what was the, I, I suppose, what led you to uh, working in the world of numbers and finance and in the accounting world? I was a round peg in a square hole. I mean, I, I, it was just not the right place for me. Um, how I initially got into it, believe it or not, my boyfriend said, I'm going to college. And I said, great, sign me up for whatever you're doing. That, that's how I got into accounting. <laughs> <laughs> I should never have been there in the first place. Um, however, I stayed in it for a good 10, 12 years, I think it was, before I changed careers. So we can get trapped in those areas. 
even though we know it's not for us, we can still get trapped there and not know how to get out initially. So I'm glad I had that experience. Do you think it's the comfort of, okay, I have some expertise in a certain area. This is what I know because I've you know, yeah. invested time in studying and, and it holds us there because it's a comfort level or, or a safety blanket in a way versus trying to expose yourself to a whole new career pathway. Yeah, there's, um, there's one thing that every human being on this planet fears, and it's one shared fear amongst all of us, and that is the unknown. So that's why we get trapped in situations where we know we're not happy, but we don't know how to get out of that, because to get out of that, we have to make a leap of faith. And it's that leap of faith that's the most trickiest thing for the human being to do, is to try new things. Now we can build up resilience to trying new things, definitely. Um, but it is our shared fear. Mm. I, I thrive in the unknown. <laughs> yeah, so, some and, people can and, learn and how to do that. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Absolutely. But it is something, it's a learned thing that we have to do. Naturally and innately, our brain prefers the comfort of the known over the unknown. And that makes sense because you survive protective. by knowing. All right, yeah. Yeah, that protective mechanism in there. So, you know, what was the, you know, obviously counting wasn't naturally you, as you say, a round peg in a square hole type thing. And for you, what was the catalyst to say, hey, you know what, I'm actually ready, I need to change, and this is what I want to do? So back then, my life was primarily dictated by circumstances. I wasn't really in charge of my next decision. I was just kind of blowing by the wind, right? So um, when I had kids and I had an opportunity to stay home with them, I just took advantage of that opportunity. If I hadn't had kids, I probably still would be in accounting, or at least I might have been. So, you know, to sometimes circumstances just blows us and sometimes we take charge. I, I help now my clients to try to take charge and to make those decisions. But Sometimes that isn't the case, and in my case, it wasn't. Yeah. Okay. And and what you know from a coaching perspective, I, you know, you went into a space. You've worked in it for, um, you know, thirty plus, um, even longer years. Uh, for yeah. you, what is it about coaching that drives you? I am fascinated by human behavior. It just it's just what I study all the time, and I've studied it my entire life, as you can see, right? Even as a child, I was really looking at human behavior and asking why. Um, so that's my primary driver. I'm a behavioral change expert. I help people to change specific behaviors. Um, I think, though, coaching is is one of those things that if you love doing it, it really becomes a huge purpose in life because it's so meaningful to be able to support somebody out of those places where they think I'm trapped and I can't never get out. And to be able to watch them be free is hugely uplifting. At least it is for me. It really gives me my purpose. Mm. Okay, so it's a fascinating thing. You know, we're put on this planet. Uh, we obviously we go through different environments, etc. Uh, but you talk about holding us back, you know, wh why aren't we born allowing us to progress forward? You know, I think as a kid, we, we tend to just go out and play and go for things. Uh, or some do not all kids, some some don't, or some will tend to hold back a bit as well. But why aren't we just 
naturally wired to go and be positive and be confident the whole time? I think we are wired that way, but I think that is educated out of us. And I'll explain what I mean. Um, our human brain is such that it creates patterns or neural pathways. And so every time that a child learns something, the brain stores that away in the form of a pattern so that it can repeat that behavior in the future. Okay. So we tend to rely on actions that are, we've already done in the past. And once our brain has a pattern, it tends to take that action over and over again, which is why somebody can make the same mistake repeatedly, knowing it's a mistake, but not being able to change it. Right. So you marry the same person again, even though the same personality again, even though you know that's incorrect. You go to the same job, even though you know that you're not going to be happy there. And you just keep making those same mistakes. So the reason for that is because our brain functions by way of patterns. Now, as a child, we didn't hold on to those patterns as readily. So each experience, we were able to upgrade that pattern or change that pattern. But eventually, through education, we become stuck in old patterns. And we tend to rely more on those old patterns than we do on making new ones. Luckily for us, our brain has plasticity. That just means it's, a, it's changing all the time. It's rewiring all the time. And so we can use our capacity to rewire our brain to upgrade our patterns and take new actions. So once we know how to do that, once we have a tool to do that, then it's quite easy to do as you suggest, to do new things all the time. Um, until we have a tool to do that, though, uh, we, we don't. We just tend to get stuck. That's what's happening. Hmm. So we tend to get stuck. Uh, all right. So lots of different areas we can go into this. Um, when you talk about we can we can do this on our own, right? So, so obviously we can change a, the way we think about something which will change the behavior. Um, how does that work? Like, so say we've got a pattern that continues to show up. How can we disrupt that? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift that a little bit because you say we can change the way we think about something and then we can change the behavior. Um, our mind is along for the ride, all right? So I like to say that every thought we have is actually the result of an existing pattern in our brain. So all of our beliefs are given by patterns. And once we have a pattern, we tend to believe along those lines. And we can't shift that very easily until we know how to shift the pattern. So let me tell you, let me explain what a pattern is. How we identify a pattern is by looking at a physical sensation, an emotion, a thought. So under everything we do, there is a physical sensation, there is an emotion, and there is a thought. There is something that our brain thinks. That can either work for us or not work for us. So we have patterns in our brain that works and we have patterns in our brain that don't work. Our job is to look for the ones that don't work and all we are gonna do is change them. So how do we do that? Well, I teach a four-step technique that goes like this. You're first gonna identify the pattern. So if anybody listening here has something that they're doing that they know is not working for them, some action they're taking, some behavior that they adopt, or, or a belief, a limited belief that they hold, instead of asking, what do I do about that? Ask this following question. How do I feel when I believe that about myself, about the world? Where do I feel that in the body? And what does my mind say about it? Okay, you've just identified the pattern, that is step one. 
The next step is to flip the switch. So let me just explain what I'm going to say. Your brain is inside a dark, silent room called a skull. It has no access to the outside world. So we think that we're actually interacting with the outside world. And we think when we look at something like a pen, we are looking at that pen. But what we're actually seeing is a pattern in our brain that informs us that's a pen. Does that make sense, Greg? Yeah. Okay, good. So if we're gonna if we're gonna change our relationship to this pen, if this pen disempowers us in some way, okay, then in order to change our relationship to that, we first need to change our pattern. So step two is to own it as a pattern and stop treating it like it's a pen out here and start to say, I created my relationship with that. I created how I feel about that. I created how I think about that. So that's step two. We're going to own it. The third step is to tease it apart. It's to deconstruct it, to take that pattern in our brain and upgrade it, rewire it. Well, in order to upgrade it and rewire it, we have to remove it first. So that's the third step. Now, that's a little trickier. I can't really explain it in two minutes here on the podcast. My book is free on my website. So go and get my book. It includes all, all the four steps, and it'll teach you how to do that third step. But it is the most powerful thing you can do. Only then can we create a new pattern. And step four is about the creation of that new pattern. I'd actually like to dive deep into that because I, okay, I'm going to go back a step here. Um, we first have to be able to recognize that a behavior or a pattern is, is not serving us. Now, some people don't, uh, for, well, sorry, right. in other people's minds, other people's perspectives, they go, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't seem right. But that person in their mind is going, this is normal. This yes, is how it's supposed exactly. to be. Exactly. One of the yeah, but from yeah. other people's perspectives, it's totally different. That's right. So, um, so here's what I teach. If it works, it has to work for everybody around you. So there's two ways to tell if you're running a pattern that doesn't work. A, you're not reaching your goals. So you set a goal and you're not taking the necessary actions to get there. Maybe you're procrastinating or avoiding. Or maybe you're doing something a lot and you're running, 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 but it's just not moving you forward in the direction you want to go. That's one way. The other way is if it creates conflict, either outside in, in your relationship or internally in you. If it beats you up, if you're saying you're not good enough, if you're feeling ashamed of something, if you're feeling fear-based about something, then that's also a pattern that doesn't work. And if it's creating conflict out there, if you're fighting with your spouse, if you're fighting with your boss, if you're constantly getting fired, that doesn't work. It doesn't matter how you feel internally. So any of those are a sign that you're running an unworkable pattern. And then it's just a matter of removing the pattern that is causing that action. Mostly we learn a method of addition. Let's fix it. Let's change it. No, no, no. We're going to remove it. We're just going to subtract it from your brain. So removing a pattern from the brain or even, yeah, and then even developing a new thing, that, that takes time. That takes work. Uh, and over the years of coaching many people uh, and seeing different people and even knowing myself and, and different behavior shifts, it's a lot of hard work. And quite often we we get sidetracked on something else. We may not hold ourselves accountable very well. Uh, so the challenge of, yes, we can have a process to do something. That's great. And some people will naturally be able to follow that process and remove it. 
but for many people they need someone to hold them accountable mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um one of the hardest things to do is to do something <laughs> to do something new especially if we don't have a pattern to do it because patterns are taking actions so um so this particular technique that I teach, it will shift any behavior. I've, I've watched it work remarkably on everything from extreme behaviors like hoarding and things like that to minor things such as, you know, being afraid of interviewing for a job or standing out on stage, right? Um, so it'll shift anything, but you're absolutely right, Craig. The first thing you have to do is be able to do it, right? So it takes six weeks to learn the technique. And I always recommend if you do get my book and you want to try this, Play with one step for a whole week first before you add another step. That will allow your brain to build the necessary experience in order to keep the action going, in order to shift the behavior. So it takes six weeks initially to learn the technique. Once you know how to do it, though, your brain is highly, highly adaptable. Uh, um, our human brain is truly remarkable. We have not grasped how remarkable it actually is. It can adapt to anything, which is why we can throw ourselves into the Antarctic or throw ourselves into the tropics and we'll fit in. We'll, we will survive, no problem, because we have this remarkable brain. So how can we harness that power? And how quick can we harness that power once we know how to harness it? Well, once you know how to do it, this technique takes about two minutes in the privacy of your own head. It's not difficult to do. In fact, it's extremely simple. And your brain will respond more and more and more the more you do it. So that kind of motivates people to get going. At first, initially, like I said, it takes six weeks. But once they are have addressed an area of concern, um, then they just want to do more and more and more because it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I can actually do this. This is actually simple. Okay. So... So in, in a pattern shifting thing, like it's not just six weeks set and forget. I No, because, it's you know, a we, lifetime <laughs> technique that you do. I still do it. I've been doing it 12 years and I still do it every day. Yeah, but it's two minutes. Like it's not a big deal. Yeah, because we, we watch this all the time, right? People get into a fitness routine. They go beyond the six weeks. They form a habit. They form a pattern. Uh, they may even get up to three months. They have one, they, they step out for one day, that becomes two, that becomes seven, next minute they're back to square one. So we can, f like, how, do we, how do we ensure that the behavior and the pattern shift or the pattern change actually is long lasting because people can still fall back into repeating the behavior, even though they've had a big shift, they can still fall back into what they used to do. So how, like, what are strategies to go beyond the six weeks uh, mm -hmm. And then obviously it's, I would imagine it's using the formula again if you do fall into it to try and get yourself back on. But that that can be easier said than done when we might be then trying to shift another behavior and another behavior and we're layering lots of things um, that we're shifting at any one time. Yeah, agreed. Um, and that's where community comes in, right? To have a community of support around you, to be a member of a community that is all... Um, working using the same technique is hugely empowering so i do have a community called the pattern maker hub and i highly recommend if anybody wants this to join us um but you know to answer your question i'm going to answer it twofold first of all how do you um you asked a question and basically what you were asking is how do you know if a change is permanent all right how do you know once you've changed something that it won't come back 
Well, if you think about how your brain works, and everybody has pictured a brain and the, those uh, neural pathways that you see on pictures, and you've got electricity that is flowing down each channel, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you think about that, that, and you, you've probably seen this image too, where that is moves around, so it gets teased apart, and then it snaps into a different channel, right? So you can picture your brain doing that. It, so you got a neural pathway here, and we're going to tease it apart, and it changes direction, and it snaps, and it hooks up with a different cell, and off it goes again, and now the electricity is flowing down there. Okay, so that's how your brain is constantly rewiring. Think about that for a moment. If you That channel is giving you a particular action, a particular behavior, a particular belief, and I'm totally oversimplifying the brain, but it's a good way to think about it. So that channel is is creating that action. Now, let's say that you tease that apart and it snaps into a new channel. Can you see how that cha that action, that old action is no longer available to you? Does that make sense? Once once that neural pathway is gone, that action is also gone with it. So if you're procrastinating, for example, and you tease apart that pattern that is pro procrastinating and it forms a different pattern that now takes an action, that procrastination isn't coming back, okay? It just doesn't happen that way. Your brain's upgraded, and it now doesn't have the, the action of procrastination within it. That's how it works. That's why it's so powerful. Okay. Because we're going to go in there and remove it and drop it outside, we'll call it. We're going to go in the pattern box. We're going to pull out that pattern, and we're going to drop it outside the pattern box. Now it's no longer available to you. Okay, so let's look at a behavior like smoking. Uh, yep. So behavior like smoking. So we can go in, we can remove the behavior. Yep. Uh, but then, you know, and that person may go quite a bit of time. Then they're in an environment where there is a sensation that feels, um, it's a positive sensation, whether it be smell, whether it be, a movement that someone does in regards to that behavior, like the the smoking behavior, that then triggers them to restart again. Yes, What's I, I'm so point? happy. So, you, so you've removed something. You're talking about the brain rewiring, but however, there can still be a sensation or something else that can then trigger us to go back into a behavior again. Yeah, that's. I love this. I love this. Um, analogy that you're using here or this situation that you're using because it's so bang on. Okay, what happens when we quit smoking it, using a traditional method of quit smoking is we still retain the pattern for smoking within our brain. So the traditional pattern will form a different neural pathway that doesn't smoke, but the pattern for smoking still li lives there. And that's why you're tempted to go back all the time. That's why you're never fully free. The person is not a non-smoker. They are always an ex-smoker, okay? But when you repattern smoking, you remove the pattern for smoking, there is no temptation. I can tell you this firsthand. I was a drinker. I was an alcoholic. I drank a bottle of wine every single night and could not stop myself from drinking that bottle. I didn't care how like, you know, I, I, I knew it wasn't good for me. I fought myself not to drink and I couldn't. So I repatterned it. I removed the pattern for drinking. People can drink around me and I have absolutely no temptation to drink. I'm not tempted in any way. I'm not hanging on my, my fingernails trying not to drink. 
if I was an ex-drinker, I would be hanging on trying not to drink. I would have to change my lifestyle in order to not be around alcohol. But as a repatterned drinker, I, I am a non-drinker. I just have no temptation. I just don't have a pattern in my brain that drinks. Yeah, I love I love the, that viewpoint in looking at that, you know, our X versus a non. Uh, and so I really, really like that, that approach. In regards to the brain, obviously we're still learning more about the brain all the time. So we're not quite, we don't fully understand it. Uh, at present, do we have a finite number of uh, neural, uh, say, lines, so to speak? You know, you're talking about your electricity, your power lines, your synapses, etc. Do we have a finite number of brain cells or, or neural pathways that can occur? Or is there unlimited space inside the brain to continually grow that out, evolve it? That's a great question. Um, the the best answer I can give you is when they studied Einstein's brain, which they have um, they have preserved. What they know about it is it is thicker. It had more neural pathways than the average brain had. Mm. And so, yeah, our brain has the capacity to create more. How many more? I don't know. Is there a limit eventually? Probably, right? <laughs> there's only so much room inside the skull, so there's probably a limitation. But um, but I think, you know, we can always improve on what we've got, right? We can always make it better and, and work with what we've got and upgrade it to make it as best we can. Mm, okay, good. Why do you think some people are more naturally happy and some are more naturally unhappy? Is this nurture or nature? Um, I, I, you know what? That's really, really difficult. Um. I think that's a question that we have been asking ourselves, humanity, since the beginning. Is it nature or is it nurture? And different people go different ways. Um, my attitude on that is we are probably born bent in a particular way. For example, I think I was born with a very, very high level of anxiety. It runs in my family. I can see it through the generations. Uh, does that mean that we're stuck with it, though? And the answer to that, I say, is no. Because even though n nurture is only playing part of it, it's still playing a massive part. And there's a lot we can do through nurture to change that. I no longer struggle with any form of anxiety, whereas I used to have panic attacks every single day. I mean, that was just it was just part and parcel of my life. Ten years of my life, I had panic attacks. So and can we be free of that? Yes, for sure. Can we be free of everything? No. I mean, some... Um, mental illnesses, some depression, they are chemical-based, they are hormonal-based, and we need support, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. I, I don't see anything wrong with taking modern medicines. They're amazing today. So get the support you need, but then don't stop there. You <laughs> start working on, okay, now I've got this brain that's now functioning a bit better. How do I improve it by repatterning it, by rewiring it? Mm. I, I think that's I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. Um, in in regards to say parents, right? So parents, uh, young children come up, they're seeing different patterns. Uh, is you know the approaches that you take are they something that are easy for young children to to learn, um, or is it something that we do we need to approach it differently as they're growing up? Obviously, I think as parents you. 
you want to guide your children, but how much can you really control what's going on in, in their mind? And should we be trying to control what's going on in their mind at that age, at a young age? Yeah. Yeah, great questions. Um, I would say the best thing you can do for your children as a parent is learn that you're not trapped in any behavior, action, or belief. Learn how to repattern your brain. Because, you know, let's go back to my drinking. When I was drinking every day, I was terrified of my children drinking because I honestly thought, oh my gosh, if they start drinking, they're going to be like me and they're never going to be able to quit. As soon as I learned that I could repattern that, I was a lot more comfortable and a lot more open to talking to my kids about drinking, about the dangers of drinking. And I could do it without making anything wrong inside that conversation. Um, so a parent who knows that they can free themselves of any behavior that they're trapped in, any belief that they feel that they are limited by, once they do that, then they feel empowered. And in that feeling of empowerment, they teach their kids that they too can be empowered. And the best thing we can do for our children is be role models like that. Like, yeah, it's okay. It's okay to make mistakes. In fact, I always say life is a series of mistakes, one after another, right? Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Just show that once you once you fall down, you get up, right? Once you fall down, you just get up again. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that as a parent, then you're teaching your kid the best gift that you can give them, which mm -hmm. is resilience. And kids are actually quite resilient when when they're young. We we sometimes I think their environments or the education tends to actually. Uh, kind of distill that, you know, sit still, don't move. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, like exactly. All those things that we were told that, you know, shift what was actually quite natural to us where we f we were learning on the go all the time where, as you say, when you fall over, they got back yeah. up uh, and it seems yeah. to change. It's and I should say, Craig, just, just to finish up this topic, I worked with one teacher, actually. She was teaching grades five and six, and she learned how to repattern. She was learning this technique, and she decided she was going to use it in her classroom. And she taught um, a more simplified version of what I teach, because I tend to use, you know, different language, adult language, and she was teaching kid language. Um, but she s said, by the end of the year, it was incredible. Like all the cliques that normally grade five, six have, you know, all of those melted away. The kids were doing their homework without her asking and coming in with their homework done in the morning. And so she was really transforming her classroom by talking to them about patterns and how to change and in, in a simplified way. So yes, they are hugely adaptable. In fact, their brain, brains have a lot more plasticity than an adult brain, right? So if we can show them how to use it, in a in a way that works for them then wow what will they be able to accomplish well i can't wait to get back to this teacher and say hey where are they at now so <laughs> great example if we're looking at a leader someone you know whether it's in corporate or any sort of space uh and they see patterns of behavior in other people how can we that may not be conducive um, to positive outcomes how can as a leader how can that person work with that person how do we approach it to be even to even start with yeah i think one of the most damaging things in our culture today is that we don't see behaviors as patterns we see behaviors as identities and it really disempowers every member of the team to do that so when a leader is able to deal directly with the behavior and not with the person 
not see it as that's a flaw in them, but oh, that's a behavior that they're adopting that doesn't work, then they're in a much better position to speak in a way that the other person isn't going to take it personally and get defensive and try to justify and all of those traps that we fall into uh, when we feel made wrong. So we swim in a world of blame and shame. It's time to change that. It, it's not working for anybody. And pointing fingers and saying, you did this, rather than here's the behavior that we need to change, this isn't working, is hugely beneficial as a leader. The other thing that I, when I work with leaders, as I teach a method of speaking to inform rather than speaking to fix, we spend far too much time trying to fix each other and not enough time just talking about how that landed for us, how that was for us, what happened internally in us when we were faced with that problem, right? So speaking to inform would sound something like, you know, when you didn't show up the other day, I had to pick up the slack and I didn't really have the time in my day to do that. And then stop talking. There's nothing else the leader needs to say. See what the other person responds with, right? Because, and you shouldn't have done that and I'm gonna put you on, um, in timeout and all of that stuff, it, it doesn't actually support the person in changing. It just sends them into being defensive, justifying, needing to make up an excuse for why they didn't do what they do. It's a great approach, you know, when you can separate the person from the problem or the person from the behavior. And as you say, just hold up that mirror in a, in a space and going, this is what I observed, this is what I noticed, this is what I felt. Uh, and allow them to then make meaning of that and be able to respond in a way that is is proactive, as you say, rather than a reactive, which we can create when we use the words you or why, etc., which if not used in the right space, like right place in language or conversation can evoke a personal attack approach where people then get defensive and back off and, then you go into a combative mode, so to speak. Um, it's how, how do we build permission to do that, though? Like you think when we're in a leadership position, you know, sometimes we may have a lot of contact with someone, sometimes we don't. In those situations where it may even be a new person and we see a behavior, how can we build permission first to then even be able to hold up a mirror, so to speak, in both from an emotional or observational point of view? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, we can always ask for it, you know? Like, hey, I'd like to share how that landed for me. I'd like to share how I felt when that happened. Are you open to me doing that, right? Um, I think the, the problem with leadership today is it's very, very top down and it really robs each individual of knowing their influence. So let's go back to our brains and how they are so adaptable with each other. Anytime that we enter into a group, whether we're the leader of that group or somebody just a subordinate within that group, we are influencing every member of that group, but we're not taught that. We're taught that, we're, that the leader has influence, but the other individuals in the group have less influence. That's not true. You sitting at a, at a meeting around a board table are just as influential as the leader. Your body language, what you're saying, how you're reacting, um, whether you're listening or not listening, that is affecting every single member of the team. 
Why? Because our brains are adapting to each other. We're much more interconnected than we realize in the subconscious regions of our brain. Mm. And my brain is picking up every flicker of your face and every body language that you're expressing, Craig, without me even knowing that it is picking that up, right? So once we teach members of the team that and we say, hey, you know what, you're you're massively influential. This group is how the group is because you're in it. Then they start to take a lot more responsibility for how they're being perceived and what they're bringing to the table. When we treat people like the leader has influence, the subordinate doesn't, we really let the subordinate off the hook a lot for a lot of stuff they do. And we place way too much responsibility on the leader that they don't have. Did that answer your question? <laughs> That's good. Uh, we, you know, everyone is a leader, as you say, and it yeah. doesn't have to be spoken. It doesn't have to be a role. It, it's, you, there are a lot of ways that we can lead people. Yeah, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna back that up by saying and every person is a follower. Every person is being influenced without them knowing it unwittingly by what other people do because our brains are constantly adapting to their environment. Sensory data comes in and that changes how our brain perceives the situation. We don't know it's, that's happening, but it's happening all the time. Which is, which is a great thing, but it's also a dangerous thing too because our subconscious mind can uh, make meaning of Mm -hmm. Say if we look at body language, right? So if I cross mm -hmm. my arm, so to speak, that can mean many different things. And I think it can be quite, if people get caught in, if if someone does this, this means this. Well, no, it could mean multiple things. That's why you need to ask questions. You need some verbal input in there. And even then, you may not actually find the real meaning if you don't ask the right question. Exactly. Exactly. So, so it's, it is complex, right? But as you say, if we are not aware of our posture, our body language, the way we word things, is it more inclusive type language? Is it more open type language? Then we do leave ourselves open to uh, people perceiving us in and our actions in a completely different way than what we meant, what we're yeah, thinking. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we, we misunderstand each other all the time. And often, most of the time, I'd say 90% of the time, we're acting on what we interpret the other person is doing rather than what the person is doing. And when we do that, it just sets up conflicts often, right? It sets up a lot of misunderstandings. And it also makes us vulnerable to um, perceptions that don't actually exist out there, right? We trust sometimes the wrong people because of that. So yeah, it works both ways. It, it's a fascinating world. You know, people want it to be more, uh, want it to be an inclusive world and to have inclusive leadership. Well, we can become more inclusive. We can, can create more inclusive environments, but we're never gonna be fully inclusive world. We, we cannot get there, as you say, because we indirectly exclude people through yes. and it and it's not just by the behavior you do it's just it's just quite often the perception of someone else what's affecting them that day uh what thoughts are running through their head um what pattern they may see that they may recognize um something else occurred like it may be a negative but actually the same pattern they're seeing could actually be a positive on the other side so it, it can sometimes actually conflict us we are remarkably 
uh, as human beings, very complex. <laughs> Extremely complex. <laughs> Extremely complex. And yet we can simplify it. Because if something's not working, it's a pattern. And if we have a pattern that doesn't work, and we have a tool to address that pattern, to change out that pattern, then we don't have to ask, am I right? Is what I'm doing correct? Do I know what to do? All of those questions go away. And if we can just ask the question, is what I'm doing working or not working? And if it isn't working, do something different about it, remove the pattern that is doing it, then all of that stress just melts away. It's like, okay, take an action. If you make a mistake, if it's not what you should be doing, if, if, it, if it blows up in your face, it's okay. It's just a pattern. Mm. You're going to have a tool in your pocket. You can pull out that tool. You can change that pattern and then do it again. See what happens then. And this relieves leaders a lot of the pressure that they're under to succeed all the time. That pressure is incredible. And, um, and it also relieves the subordinate to try different things and see if it works, right? And as long as the leader is, is in agreement that, yeah, mistakes will happen and that's okay, then everybody on the team can relax a little bit. Yeah, it's really, really good. We, we're talking here, uh, the so last part of this conversation around leadership. And, you know, I've noticed that there's a bit more of a dispersed leadership in what you're talking about here and we talked about before we come on around um hierarchy versus a hierarchy uh and i know you're quite passionate about this i'd love to know a little bit more how how does hierarchy leadership look versus a hierarchy uh and and can we actually will we actually remove hierarchy altogether or do we still need it no oh, great question so um I'll just define what a hierarchy first is and where this term came about. So back in the 1950s, and I apologize, I apologize, his name has slipped my mind. Somebody was working on artificial intelligence back in the 1950s. He was looking at the brain and how the brain functions. And at the time, we thought that the brain functioned hierarchically. In other words, we thought there was a control center in the brain, which controlled all the other aspects of what we do. And as he started to study the brain to understand better how to create artificial intelligence, he realized that's not happening at all. What happens in the brain is the brain has what it, he called a fluid hierarchy. So leadership would shift from area to area depending on the situation out there, okay? So parts of your brain would sometimes lead, parts would follow, they would drop into the followship role. And then that part would step up into the leader role and the rest of the brain would follow that part of the brain. And he realized that this fluid hierarchy was occurring all the time. And he termed this a heterarchy. And um, as then, you know, the world started to try to apply a heterarchy to the leadership model and it didn't work very well. People don't give up that leader role very well. Have you noticed? They tend to hold on to it and they tend to think that it's some sort, something that they, it is them, it is their identity, it is who they are. So the only way to create a heterarchy within a team, and a heterarchy would mean that depending on what is going on in that team, a different person would step to the lead and everybody else would follow. And then when that project is over, that person would step back and another leader would step up depending on the next project. In order to create that, that level of fluid leadership, we have to do away with this idea of leadership as status. 
Okay. The problem with the hierarchy model is we elevate the leader and put them in a pedestal and we say, you earn more, you're better, you're the knowledgeable one, um, you get the power, you, you get the control. Well, all of that prevents a hierarchy and creates a dynamic of um, sabotage, manipulation, worship, uh, serving, all those things that we see in a hierarchy. Okay, so we have to start differently. The reason the hierarchies didn't work in the past is we tried to create them within a model in which leadership is something that we want to grasp hold of and never let go of. Um, so when we can do away with that status internally, now we're in the position to create a hierarchy. So I, I, me and my team in my business, we are now a hierarchy. We're fluid. Um, the reason we do that is because we work first with the status. It's like a distributed leadership type model in a way where, yeah. um, but it's not always defined at the beginning. It's it's defining as it goes along around, you know, excellent. You take the lead on this one, uh, which is fantastic. I, I love that approach. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people in the world ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time oh love that question i just bought myself 76 acres does that count <laughs> <laughs> when do i when's the last time i did something then um all the time i am constantly mixing things up and changing things in my life and um moving things around i i don't think i i've i just changed my model my business model so anytime I think something isn't working, I'll just switch it up. So I got no problem doing that. <laughs> I can't imagine too many people buying 76 acres today. <laughs> so that's a good one. <laughs> I like that. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Oh, the one question I would love to solve why do we keep asking what is right what is wrong why do we keep insisting that we have to know the truth rather than asking ourselves why isn't this working and letting it go why do we keep striving why can't we just remove what doesn't work for us mm, very good for you what is an inspiring great leader and who is a great example of this for you hmm interesting an inspiring great leader you know i i am I'm, I'm actually admiring biden and how he is dealing with all the pressures that the america is under today i must say he's in a very polarized country i'm not american i'm canadian so i'm reflecting on this from the outside just saying but he's in a he seems to me to be in a very polarized country and yet he just keeps consistently showing up as consistent without getting all tied up in knots about who's right who's wrong like i was saying before um and just doing his best for every single member of that country and his best may not always work. I, I am not saying that he's always right, but at least he's showing up as I'm not going to get involved in, in choosing sides. Good observation. 
Adele, been a great conversation today and I'm sure many people would love to learn more about what you do. So what is the best way for people to connect with you? Well, if you want a free copy of my book, like I said, you can get a copy at my website or at shift4steps.com. So that's probably the best place to start, shift4steps.com. If you want to know about me and my thought leadership, then adelespragan.com. That's two Gs in Spragan. Um, so either one of those. Um, and yeah, feel free to reach out to me on social media. I'm on all the different channels. So direct message me. I'd love to hear from everybody. Adele, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for diving deep into allowing us to understand a little bit around what shaped your world uh, from a young child through those formative years to where you are today and taking us on a, a journey through human behavior and neuroscience and looking at how the brain rewires and the importance of our behaviors and being able to recognize those patterns and being able to then realize that we can break those patterns, we can remove them and then insert and create a new pattern of behavior. Uh, it's so empowering. And so thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. No, thank you for having me, Craig. It's been my pleasure. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders Movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast, where the ordinary don't belong.